Welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. Today's event in our season of Somery Smith Pearson Podcasts is John's article entitled Stanley Olson's Non-Existent Literary Archives, first published in our issue for summer 2015. The subject of this essay is a character called, as you would expect, Stanley Olson, a young American who appears in Life Regained, the diaries for 1970-71 to 71 of that grand dame of the period, Francis Partridge. These podcasts come to you without charge, exclusively from that indispensable journal, The Book Collector. Stanley Olson's Non-Existent Literary Archives Haywood Hill opened his Curzon Street bookshop in September 1936. Within a day or two, Francis Partridge and James Lees Milne had both opened accounts with him. Both stayed loyal to his cause for the rest of their long lives, and when it came to their selling any of their books, they came to us for advice. In the mid-1970s, Francis summoned me to West Halkin Street, having run out of shelf space, and I soon admitted that I was out of my depth. The books she showed me included a small group that had been rebound by Robert Southey. She had had an earlier passing interest in amateur binders, possibly when she was working in the Bloomsbury bookshop owned by David Garnett and Francis Burrell. If she had owned books for 30 years, she had no idea whether they were collectible or valuable. I had never heard of Southey as a binder, and they were unlikely to feature in book auction records, so we guessed at a reasonable figure, and I was lucky enough to show them to a contemporary who had recently moved to Southey Country and bore them away. My only other memory of Francis's library is of a charming 1820s bird book illustrated with hand-coloured engravings and entitled Harmonia Ruralis. It caught the eye of a suitable collector called Mr Nightingale, who was delighted to hear that it had come from Mrs. Partridge. Francis and Jim Lees Milne were, of course, fellow diarists. Francis's sister, Ray, had been David Garnett's first wife, and Francis's husband, Ralph, the third in the Strachey-Carrington-Partridge triangle. This made her a central figure in the second generation of Bloomsbury's. At the time of my encounter, she had no plans for publishing her diaries, and asked me what she could do with her huge accumulation of letters and literary material. Not long beforehand, E.M. Forster had left his archive to King's College, Cambridge. I advised a little caution, as the majority of his books had quickly found their way into a heifer's catalogue at very affordable prices. She hadn't known of this, and thought she'd better consult Dady Rylands before she spoke to the college librarian. Haywood's links with Bloomsbury were less obvious than Francis's, but his contemporaries in publishing, such as Roger Senhouse, were frequent visitors to the shop, and his brothers-in-law, Bob and Eddie Gaythorne Hardy, moved in similar literary circles. It may have been through Francis that Haywood had been introduced to Lytton Strachey. He once told me that as a young man he had been invited to sit on Lytton's knee, a cultural medal of which he was obviously proud. In Life Regained, her diaries for 1970-71, to Frances introduced a new character into her cast, a young American, Stanley Olson, 
who had taken the Hogarth Press as the subject of his doctorate. At 24, he could have been her grandson, and she was flattered that he should treat her as a primary source of information. She had found his introductory letter obsequious, but he won her over with his conversation and listened with rapt attention as she told him at first hand her version of the menage a trois at Hamspray, of Strake's death and Carrington's suicide. He was never keen to discuss money or what it could buy, a tray that he shared with Francis. He was short of stature and tubby, but he dressed with style and might well have had a tame tailor. He wanted to look and sound as discreetly English as possible. The only time he opened a drawer in his Marylebone muse to show me something special was to display his huge collection of spotted handkerchiefs. During the next ten years, Stanley played a major role as Francis's companion. As he adored Wagner, they were soon going to Covent Garden together and enjoying long conversations on the telephone. He met a host of her friends. Through Janetta Parlade, he was introduced to Andrew Devonshire. This led to an unlikely visit to the Duke's home in Ireland, Lismore Castle, County Waterford, where Stanley was to be instructed in the art of fly-fishing. This might have been daunting to a beginner who had never held a rod, let alone taken on the full panoply of the necessary clothes at Hardy's, but Stanley duly appeared in his immaculate gear, and probably arranged to have someone hired in London to pack his bags, as they would be opened by a maid or footman. He was always avid for gossip, and found Haywood Hill's bookshop unusually amusing. There was at least one of my young recruits, the elder daughter of Sir Oliver Miller, to whom he proposed marriage. Another of his candidates was Henrietta Partridge, nay Garnet, one of our only customers to have been carried out of the shop feet first. She confessed to Francis, her ex-mother-in-law, that she much enjoyed Stanley's company, but missed any hint of sex. Widely read though he was, he didn't call himself a collector. It was no surprise that at an early stage he asked me to find an affordable set of the New York edition of Henry James. We had two volumes in what Leon Edel had called the Jolly Corner, near our bow window, and I told him that the only way to get a complete set at a reasonable price would be to collect the rest in odd groups as they came our way. Ten barren years passed, until I was offered twenty-two volumes that had been bought by Prime Minister Asquith and inherited by his grandson, Mark Bonham Carter. The latter rarely took them off his crowded shelves, so offered them to me. What might they be worth? I explained that no customer would want an incomplete set. We agreed on a figure, and I took them back to Curzon Street in a taxi. Once we had unpacked them, I telephoned Stanley and, in a note of apology, told him the provenance and price. He said he would like them, and added, I thought you had a memory, John. Ten years ago you sold me portrait of a lady. Those are the missing volumes, even if they didn't belong to Mr. Asquith. In the early 1980s, we shared two significant projects. He had already written a biography of Eleanor Wiley, and now wanted to research and publish the life of John Singer Sargent. He wondered whether I knew Richard Ormond, Sargent's great-nephew, then keeper of Victorian portraits at the National Portrait Gallery. Richard was a long-standing and close friend of one of my brothers-in-law, Michael Archer, and this made the introduction very easy. 
Like many Americans, Stanley was surprised how small the network was at a certain level of the publishing museum world. The second project was partly inspired by a third-rate television profile of Patrick Lee Fermel. The presenter was the unlikely Russell Harty. If he had read a word of A Time of Gifts, he showed no grasp of its quality. There was no insight into Paddy Lee Fermer's travels or friends. None of the colourful characters in the Marnie appeared. We were told about the war exploits in Crete, and there were some pretty pictures of Cardamalee, but it was an object lesson in dumbing down, and a great opportunity lost. It was a surprise that Stanley asked me for my reactions. He wanted to discuss a new idea. He began by asking me about the literary generation of Haywood Hill and, incidentally, Francis Partridge, Cyril Connolly, Raymond Mortimer, Christopher Isherwood, Peter Quennell, et al. Many had known the bookshop, as Stanley knew well. Now, he said, how many of them have ever been offered a responsible interview on television? None. So, what about our starting a business where we found suitable interviewers for leading writers and create a literary archive for posterity. Once made, the programmes would be essential for university and school libraries for their courses in literature. The interviews, if properly planned, would take no more than a few days to film. This should provide two complementary shows, one lasting half an hour, the other longer and more detailed. The first would be to hand as a visual obituary when the writer died, the other for research scholars. Within reason, the writers should have some editorial control and excise anything that they didn't like. If you were offered the chance of seeing a ten-minute film of Virginia Woolf arriving at a party of her Bloomsbury friends and relations, wouldn't you be excited? I was instantly converted, but wondered what our next move could be. Setting up a new business was never going to be Stanley's forte, and I had neither the time nor expertise. I tried the idea on two acquaintances who both thought it had great possibilities, but they warned me about keeping it under my hat or it would be snitched by someone else. We had some jolly discussions about potential interviewees. Harold Acton and Sir Chaveril Sitwell immediately came to mind. They might both seem to be privileged and elitist, but neither was tongue-tied and Acton had the added attraction of an inimitable pre-war voice that had a soigné Italian tinge and contained phrases like coming back to dear old Blighty, as if he hadn't stayed at the Ritz since 1938. Osbert Lancaster and Iris Origo were still alive, as were illustrious publishers like Hamish Hamilton and Jock Murray. Or should we focus on younger novelists who, in our view, had real mileage? Might a playwright or two add some variety? Biographers, historians and travellers would also be available, as they were in the context of the Haywood Hill Literary Prize a decade later. A helpful friend advised that we should approach Graham Greene, whose place was assured in the firmament. If he agreed and didn't object to leaving France or wanted to extract a massive fee, that would be a trophy name to wave in front of possible angels. We then registered a business called Literary Archives and even had some writing paper printed. But it soon became clear that none of us had a clue about business plans and we needed to know a great deal more about the world of television and the likely sums that might be needed 
before any profit was even vaguely possible. Antony Pole's elder son, Tristram, had some experience of interviewing, so I took him out to lunch and fired a few relevant questions. When he estimated the cost of three days' filming at £50,000, I could see no hope that our dreams could be realised. Meanwhile, Stanley was making great progress with John Sargent. His biography was ready for publishing in 1986, and he planned a celebratory lunch at Claridge's for 20 of his close friends on publication day. The menu card promised a bombe for our dessert, the richest the chef had ever created. Stanley had never been one to think along the lines of mensano incorpore sano, and none of the various compartments of his life involved physical exercise. This devotion to rich food turned out to be his downfall. Later that same year, he had a terrible stroke while staying with Andrew Devonshire's sister, Anne Tree, in Dorset. Selina Hastings drove him to the Harley Street Clinic, fearing that he would die on the journey, then had the problem of ringing the American Embassy for details of the Olsen parents in Akron, Ohio. When they managed to fly to London three days later, she and I were asked by Andrew to give the parents and older brother lunch at Claridge's, where we had a surreal conversation, finding out the details of Stanley's early life, a compartment that he had totally isolated. Two years of hospital treatment followed, then physiotherapy and speech therapy, but he never returned to normal life and died at the age of 42. A cousin of his, Phyllis Hatfield, wrote an affectionate memoir called Pencil Me In. This was his inevitable formula when making a date for lunch. But she had no knowledge of Francis Partridge's later diaries, where Stanley would have been constantly mentioned. Complete with his spaniel, Wutzo, which travelled round Mayfair in the basket of his tricycle, he was a perfect subject for the non-existent literary archives. That was Neil Pearson reading Stanley Olson's Non-Existent Literary Archives, brought to your comfortable chair by the world-renowned journal The Book Collector.